Hello, and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Airs LA. My name is Nancy Porter, and it is my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you. I need to remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. We begin time issue of December 4th, 2023, and the section is called Time 100 Climate, Time CO2. The most influential leaders driving business climate action, in their own words. In 2023, China Hongokyo Group, one of the largest aluminum producers in the world, shut down one and a half million tons of smelting capacity and moved it across the country, unplugging from coal electricity and connecting instead to cleaner hydroelectric power. By itself, the move expected to slash carbon pollution from those smelters by 30%. It's the kind of business decision that would have been unthinkable just a few years ago and a dramatic example of national but important trend, business taking direct action to fight climate change. Solving climate change requires bold new styles of business leadership. It also requires mobilizing massive amounts of capital. Recent estimates vary from $3 trillion to $5 trillion annually over the coming decade into practical solutions that reduce emissions, restore nature, and improve quality of life. Scientists have identified the problem and can evaluate our options. Activists and organizers can amplify the conversation. But businesses are often best positioned to actually deploy solutions on the ground at scale. This is starting to happen. The United States Inflation Reduction Act, considered the most important piece of climate-related legislation ever, represents about $370 billion in investment over the next decade. And a new generation of business leaders is taking advantage of its incentives to build better products, services, and companies. But unfortunately, business is still moving far too slowly. And most people have no idea that these transformations in commerce, law, policy, technology, community leadership, and science are even taking place. In fact, the so-called green hushing effect, companies intentionally staying quiet about actions on climate change and nature for fear of harsh public scrutiny, is growing. Some business leaders driving positive action right now, even in the world's most heavily polluting industries like shipping, manufacturing, agriculture, and industry. In line with the latest scientific and economic thinking, there are five systems most crucial to change. Energy, nature, finance, culture, and health. There is hope. All right, we move now to the leadership series in this time 100. Headline, Rebel with a Cause. Tadashi and I grew Uniqlo into a global force. Now he's out to fix his country. By Charlie Campbell in Tokyo. The previous evening storm clouds have cleared to bathe Tokyo in crisp sunshine. 
Tadashi Inai, Japan's richest man and the founder of $73 billion apparel empire Uniqlo, is perusing the art books that line his wood-paneled office, which, like most of his firm's cavernous headquarters, commands sweeping vistas of the Sumida River. Finally, he retrieves one he believes will be of particular interest, a tome of historical photographs curated by Time magazine that features John F. Kennedy on the cover in deep conversation with his brother Bobby during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I particularly like his saying, Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, says Yanai, age 74, carefully replacing the book in its stand. That's what I want to talk about today. On the face of it, Yanai has many reasons to feel upbeat. Fast Retailing, the holding company that operates Uniqlo and eight other brands he established out of his father's tailoring business, saw operating profits of $2.54 billion for the year to August 31st, up 28.2% year-over-year. The firm's share price, meanwhile, has soared 31% so far this year propelling Yanai's personal wealth to $36 billion. He also has bold plans to finally conquer the United States by nearly tripling Uniqlo's existing 72 North American outlets by 2027. The rosy outlook radiates across Japan, where a perennially sluggish economy is now predicted to grow faster than those of the United States and Europe, its bourse riding a three-decade high. Moreover, in response to the Ukraine war, Japan has pushed through a transformative increase in defense spending and in May welcomed world leaders for a G7 summit in Hiroshima, galvanizing a resurgent leadership role for the world's number three economy. The alliance between Japan and the United States is unprecedentedly strong and deep, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida told Time in late April. Yet Yanai is not buying his nation's new swagger. Instead, it's time for some home truths, he says, insisting he wants to deliver a shocking statement to his compatriots. Wake up, he says squarely. Japan is not an advanced nation at all, because we have been in a dormant state for 30 years. Yanai's sobering pitch is that Japan's economy is teetering on a precipice because of an unhealthy obsession with manufacturers, workers conditioned to corporate bloat, and a budget financed by soaring debt rather than tax receipts. In December, Japan's cabinet approved a record $858 billion general account budget for 2023 despite expecting only $493 billion in tax revenue, with plans to issue $250 billion in new government bonds over the same period. Japan's public debt is already 264% of gross domestic product, the highest in the world, and nominal wages, not adjusted for inflation, rose by just 4% from 1990 to 2019, 
compared with 145% in the United States. Productivity languishes at the bottom of G7 nations. In Beijing and Shanghai, people are getting two and three times the compensation of equivalent positions in Japan, says Yanai. We need to normalize Japan's economy. Yanai is putting his money where his mouth is, and in March, hiked the wages of fast retailing's 8,400 or so employees in Japan by up to 40%. That still is low. It should be much higher, he confesses. He is calling on Japan's government to take similarly proactive measures such as raising interest rates, cutting handouts, and making sweeping regulatory changes to prevent the nation of 125 million people from sleepwalking into disaster. Fiscal lethargy is never a good look for a key U.S. ally, but especially not for one in the direct shadow of China, which Washington has come to regard not only as an economic competitor, but also as a global rival. Still, Yanai's rallying cry chafes with Japanese executives who owe their careers to steadily climbing the corporate ladder. Whether they will buy into his subversive fervor is a huge question. Yanai isn't coy about the stakes. Unless we tap into the rest of the world and become more active, there will be no future for the Japanese people. Yanai can't help but swim against the tide. He's a vibrant dynamo in a corporate culture famed for gray conformity and happily flaunts his success despite local taboos against ostentatious wealth. He owns two golf courses on Maui alone. Yanai has zero hesitation skewering the political elite when rival CEOs are more concerned by their stock price. The Japanese government and bureaucrats need to have their mindsets challenged, he says because they know nothing. But a man whose 2003 autobiography is titled One Win and Nine Losses certainly cannot be accused of arrogance. His bootstraps ascension story has been one of struggles overcome, mistakes owned, self-doubt always lingering. Hailing from the town of Ubi in Yamaguchi Prefecture, Lanai grew up in the cramped rooms above his parents' shop, which sold off-the-rack suits. He studied political economy at Tokyo's prestigious Waseda University, but graduated without going to any classes, he says, because of a leftist student walkout that lasted 18 months. But the break in studies gave him the opportunity to travel to the United States and the United Kingdom where the proliferation of mid-market clothing shops planted a seed that he would eventually sprout back home. After a brief stint selling men's clothes for a supermarket chain, Yanai was handed the keys to his father's shop in 1972. But within two years, all the staff except one had walked out because of frictions over his management style. The only colleague to remain still works with him. Still, the business grew steadily until, in 1984, Yanai established the first branch of the Unique Clothing Warehouse, later shortened to Uniqlo. 
in central Hiroshima. Uniqlo's early success was rooted in a low price point combined with high quality materials. Yanai doggedly experimented with new fabrics like the popular heat tech range that retains warmth in winter while breathing in sweltering summers. The firm's breakthrough came in 1998 when Yanai opened its first Tokyo outlet. Its debut campaign was a lightweight fleece for just $15, which caused a sensation amid the cost-conscious post-bubble economy. Every fourth Japanese consumer bought one. Yanai transformed his family's tiny clothing store into an international phenomenon, with more than 3,500 fast retailing stores across the world including Uniqlo flagships in London's Covent Gardens, Milan's Piazza Corduccio, and Fifth Avenue in New York City. Uniqlo has already overtaken Gap in terms of global reach and is fast hunting down Sweden's H&M and Spain's Zara. My goal <coughs> is to drive growth wherever possible, insists Yanai. Still, there have been blunders. In 2001, Uniqlo opened 21 stores in the United Kingdom, only to shut 16 of them within two years after miserable results. In 2005, Uniqlo opened its first three U.S. stores in New Jersey, but all were closed by the following year. We were nobody, Yanai says. The U.S. was my biggest failure. Yet, he kept striving and evolving. Whereas his first billions were owed to plain, functional, durable clothing at minimal cost, today Uniqlo has moved up the value chain. It has designed collaborations with the uh, Museum of Modern Art, the Louvre, and Tate Modern, as well as brand ambassadors including tennis superstar Roger Federer, who in 2018 signed a $30 million per year deal that tripled that of his previous sponsor, Nike. For Yanai, the underlying philosophy is to fail rather than fade. He bears the scars from Ubi, which was a coal mining boomtown until the energy transition caused the pits to close and jobs to move elsewhere. As they did, all the shops that served them also shuttered. It was a grim lesson that every business plan has a shelf life, and those that don't adapt perish. Yanai's passion for pushing boundaries is embodied by Uniqlo's Tokyo headquarters, which sprawls over the size of a city block, with 14-foot-high ceilings, cafes, and hangout spaces. The research and development lab boasts test chambers where new materials are plunged into negative 40-degree Fahrenheit chills or torrential downpours as the wearer's comfort is monitored via thermal imaging cameras. In the basement are seven dedicated photo and video studios where models parade next season's lines and the color-corrected images are uploaded immediately to the firm's website by technicians perched 10 feet away. There's a library overflowing with design books and a great hall modeled on a sumo stadium where polished timber bleachers can seat 1,000 people for large presentations. Everything is geared toward collaboration and control. 
Instead of simply entrusting overseas suppliers to replicate sample garments, Uniqlo maintains at great expense an innovation factory in Tokyo, where it first finesses the entire manufacturing process. Ranks of 3D sewing machines that can stitch complex garments from just one thread without seams, making them up to 40% more efficient, clatter away as production managers tinker with hundreds of variables to optimize quality and speed, down to the length and temperature of the post-manufacturing wash. Then the entire production manifest is sent to partner factories in Bangladesh or Vietnam that are equipped with identical machines and materials, ensuring precise replication even when production is ramped up by a factor of thousands. It's critical that quality goes together with fashion and functionality, says Yanai. Uniqlo's agility and swelling global prominence run counter to the diminishing imprint of many storied Japanese firms. Up until the 2000s, Japan teemed with engineering pioneers. Casio invented the pocket calculator, Seiko the quartz wristwatch, Fujifilm the first digital camera. But in recent years, complacency, conservative leadership, and fierce competition have seen Japanese brands fall behind. Japanese businesses are managed as if they're looking in the rearview mirror, says Yanai. Japanese people need to come to terms with the reality that Japan is lagging behind other Asian countries. Many in Japan agree. Last year, Kishida unveiled plans to boost the number of startups in Japan tenfold by 2027 by helping entrepreneurs secure state or private funding. Just 0.08% of Japan's GDP is invested in startups compared with 0.64% in the United States and 2.61% in Israel. A key barrier is psychological. Japan's business culture is rooted in the concept of nemawashi, or consensus building, an informal process of quietly gathering support and feedback for any proposed project or directional shift. By contrast, Yanai's leadership style is that of a dictator, says Yasushi Hasegawa, managing director of Tokyo-based business consultancy Finetra Partners. The biggest shortcoming of Japan is that there is no individuality, says Yanai. People need to stand on their own feet. Many in Japan wonder Whoever succeeds Yanai will maintain the risk of taking ethos so pivotal to Uniqlo's success. In 2002, Yanai handed the reins of Uniqlo to Genichi Tamatsuka, a former deputy, but returned as the firm's president after three years, saying that Tamatsuka wanted steady growth, but I want more transformation and growth. In August, Yanai again announced he was taking a step back from day-to-day -day operations with Daisuke Tsukagoshi, formerly Uniqlo Global CEO, becoming the brand's executive director, president, and COO. 
The burning question is whether the post-UNI Uniqlo retains its zeal for disruption and pushing boundaries. Maybe Uniqlo will be a normal company after he dies, suggests Hasegawa. What Uniqlo can do for Japan, at least in its founder's eyes, is clear. In this next phase, then, Yanai may be left asking what his country can do to Uniqlo. Moving now to the section titled Time Off. Again, in the December 4th issue. Headline, The Movie Wives Are Speaking. The wives of famous men, often relegated to the sidelines, reclaim space in a crop of new films. The mid-20th century wife is such a vivid type in popular art that we think we've got her down cold. In our minds, she's usually a June Cleaver cliché. But in real life, the mid-century wife faced daunting expectations. She may have worked outside the home during wartime, but more often than not, the wife changed all that. She was supposed to bear children and raise them to be cheerful, productive adults, all while keeping a spotless home and having dinner on the table by 6 p.m. Stressed out from all of that, barbiturates, benzos, and booze were the dysfunctional solution. The mid-century wife couldn't win, though we all know of women who kicked free of those expectations, sometimes at great cost to themselves or those around them. These women usually don't get movies made about them, yet somehow, often miraculously, the culture subconsciously corrects some of its problems. Whether by accident or by unconscious design, 2023 has been the year of the movie wife. In Bradley Cooper's Maestro, Sofia Coppola's Priscilla, even Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, and Michael, Furman, Michael Mann's Ferrari, those last two made by male directors who aren't exactly known for exploring the experiences of women, the movie wife has come barging in from the sidelines in all her glory. She may not be the main character, but she's resolute about taking up space in the frame. We've been told for decades now by the men who move money around in Hollywood that movies about women don't sell. The success of Barbie may have shifted that thinking, but we'll have to wait and see. Maybe that's why, in films that are mostly about men, it's always gratifying to discover women who are adamantly and defiantly themselves. Think of Reese Witherspoon's feisty yet fine-grained performance as June Carter Cash in Jane Mangold's Walk the Line, or Ingenue Ellis Taylor's magnificent no-nonsense turn as Oracine Price, the mother of Venus and Serena Williams, in Reynaldo Marcus Green's movie King Richard. All of these characters are adjacent to men. Otherwise, their stories might not be told at all. But adjacency is often the thing that, for better or worse, puts a woman in the spotlight testing her in ways she could not have imagined. How a male filmmaker deals with that says a lot about him. 
It's better for men and women when a movie treats both as complicated beings, interconnected in that risky experiment known as marriage. In The Right Stuff, Philip Kaufman's 1983 film adapted from Tom Wolfe's book about the early years of the U.S. space program, the wives of the Mercury 7 astronauts, played by actors including Pamela Reed, Veronica Cartwright, Mary Jo DeChannel, and Ma Kathy Baker, are treated as individuals with distinctive character traits, even though they're supporting players in the story. Kaufman seemed to be taking a stance against the idea of wives being lumped together as faceless helpmeets. Sometimes the things a filmmaker chooses not to focus on tell us the most about his motives. In Maestro, in theaters on November 22nd and on Netflix on December 20th, Cooper directs himself in the role of Leonard Bernstein. But he includes very few scenes of Bernstein conducting or writing. Cooper wants to tell us things we don't already know about Bernstein as a lover to both men and women, as an affectionate father, as a whirlwind force. More than a survey of a man, Maestro is a portrait of a complex, ardent marriage which makes Bernstein's wife, the Chilean-born actor Felicia Montaligure, played by Carrie Mulligan, the key to the story. Mulligan captures Montaligure's ladylike essence, her elegant manners, her obvious pride in being married to a genius, a man she loved fiercely. She fell in love with Bernstein knowing that he was, depending on how you want to frame issues of the human heart and libido, either gay or bisexual. Later, his affairs tore at the fabric of their marriage. Yet, she had made a clear-eyed choice in the beginning, and Mulligan's performance, fiery and opulent at once, gives life to a complicated idea. Making the right choices in life doesn't necessarily protect us from pain. You can't really know what you're signing up for in a marriage until you're well into it. In Maestro, Montalegre puts a human face on that idea. The idea of a woman quietly standing by her man through infidelity is so common in the movies that we tend to think of it as a plot device. But in reality, these experiences are as individual and distinct as the real-life people who get through them. In Oppenheimer, released this summer, Emily Blunt plays Kitty Oppenheimer, the wife of Cillian Murphy's genius physicist and ladies' man, J. Robert Oppenheimer. And in Ferrari, in theaters December 25th, Penelope Cruz's Laura Ferrari suffers not so as silently as her husband, race car mogul Enzo, Adam Driver, builds a semi-secret life with another woman. Shailene Woodley's Lena Lardy and their child. Both Laura and Kitty have good reasons to be miserable, and in some ways they reflect the reality that mid-century wives often struck with crummy husbands for practical reasons. But marital loyalty can be complicated. That was as true in the 1940s and 1950s as it is today. 
Kitty Oppenheimer had lived a dramatic life before she even met Oppenheimer. She was on her third husband when the two met, and she had joined the Communist Party in the 1930s, an affiliation that would haunt her. She was also a scientist in her own right, a biologist and botanist. Her union with Oppenheimer was stormy. She drank a little too much, and perhaps worse, spoke her mind freely. Nolan's movie shows all the ways Kitty's was unmanageable as a wife. Manageability, after all, was a desirable quality in mid-century wives. But in a late scene, testifying during her husband's kangaroo court security hearing before the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, she defends her husband and herself with icy directness. This is where a wife's unmanageability comes in handy. A woman who won't be controlled or bullied is sometimes a man's best ally. You could say the same of Cruz's Laura, who at first appears to want to sabotage her wayward husband's life and business. But Cruz vests Laura with an intricate combination of qualities a kind of practicality mingled with fealty for a man who admittedly hasn't done right by her. Ultimately, she commits an act of generosity that saves her husband's company, though you never see her as a pushover. By saving her husband, she is also flexing her power, defying any expectations of how she should react or behave. A man who needs saving is not as strong as he thinks. That's true also of Elvis Presley, a great artist, but something of a mess as a man. Priscilla Presley's affectionate but clear-eyed 1985 memoir, Elvis and Me, was previously adapted into a 1988 TV movie that almost no one remembers. Stories in which the wife is the main character have always been a relative rarity but Coppola shifts that current with Priscilla. Newcomer Kaylee Spaney is superb as the woman who fell hard for a king when she was still a schoolgirl. She was 14, he was 24, but who also knew when it was time to walk away from his twisted castle. The movie wraps us close in Priscilla's dream of love to point that we're as shattered by its inevitable end as she is. As a performer, Elvis, played here by Jacob Elordi, was one of the great symbols of mid-century modernity, but his idea of what a wife should be were strictly old-fashioned, a tragedy for both parties. We're in step with Spaney's Priscilla every moment as she makes the transition from teenage daydreamer to cautious girlfriend to defiant wife. When she walks out that door, it's Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You playing on the soundtrack. In real life, Elvis reportedly sang that song to Priscilla on the courthouse steps just after their divorce was finalized. And he'd always wanted to record it. But Parton reluctantly had to refuse him. Elvis's devious manager, Colonel Tom Parker, had demanded half the publishing rights. And so a song that's an open declaration of undying love 
is also wrapped up in the necessity of walking away, of saying no, of withholding something you wish in your heart you could give. Sometimes that's the best thing a wife can do. And we will conclude with a back page section titled Six Questions. Narjestoma Natmadi, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, tells Angelina Jolie about life in an Iranian prison, the roots of the protest movement, and what gives her hope. Question. When you think of your childhood, is there anything that would help us imagine the life of an Iranian family? Answer. In Iran, family relationships are not only strong among close relatives, but also with the extended family members. My mother's family was politically active and engaged. In the 1979 revolution, a significant portion of my mother's family and some members of my father's family were among those imprisoned and even executed. These events directly linked the world of my childhood to the world of struggle and resistance. Question. Are there things about being an Iranian woman that people might not know? Answer. My mother refrained from even wearing black socks, let alone dresses. She wore lively and colorful clothing. The religious government forced us, as children of that happy mother, to wear dark and black overcoats, trousers, and headscarves. The values of Iranian families were different from the values promoted by the government. The history of my land is the tale of the struggle of freedom-seeking and tradition-breaking women which has continued till the woman life freedom movement of today. Question. How do you keep your fellow prisoners going in such difficult circumstances? Answer. In total, since 2012, I have been imprisoned alongside more than 800 fellow cellmates. Having a political female prisoner alongside women with charges of murder, robbery, and drug trafficking can be quite challenging. From the outside, it even seemed impossible for us to coexist. But life, with all its beauties and nuances, continued inside the walls and bars. Although different political orientations and conflicting ideologies can lead to discord, we, by emphasizing our commonalities, made life there more vivid. Question. Are you able to speak to your family? Answer. Since the birth of my twins, Alla and Kiana, I have been detained three times. I think suffering my detention in front of the eyes of my children, enduring solitary cells while not seeing their faces and not hearing their voices, was unbearable beyond any word, logic, or belief. All these years, the dream of freedom and equality in my homeland and the realization of human rights and democracy in my society have given meaning to this suffering for me. Now my dreams are my only point of connection to Ali and Kiana. Question. I've been following the tragic story of Arminta Jaravand, who, like Marsha Gina Amini, died after encounter with the morality police. Response. The pain of this horrific incident was deep and merciless because the government attempted to prevent the disclosure of the truth through deceit, lies, and duplicity. 
the government's effort to bury the truth is more terrifying and agonizing than its actions to eliminate its opponents and protesters. Question. Do you see any grounds for optimism? Answer. Our struggle to abolish mandatory hijab is a fight against the dictatorship of the religious state, which has now led to the formation of a great and revolutionary movement. In my belief, democracy and human rights are impossible without the realization of women's rights, and it is the realization of women's rights that guarantees democracy. I am very hopeful, and this hope demands more action effort and struggle from me and propels me forward. Hope increases my motivation for resistance and fighting on. I know too well that victory is not easy, but it is certain. Final question. Does your Nobel Peace Prize hold any particular meaning to you? Answer. We, the people of Iran, we're able to turn our national demand into a rallying cry that became the name of our movement, reciting women, life, freedom from the Nobel Peace Prize podium is a most potent and meaningful message to the people of Iran that their voice has been heard by the world. And that was an interview of Narjas Mohammadi, the Nobel Peace Prize winner done with Angelina Jolie. And that concludes our reading of Time Magazine for this podcast. I need to remind you again, you were listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share Time Magazine with you.